This is Once for All, where Jude 3 says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Listen in as the faith held by believers of all times is now delivered to you. And welcome to another edition of Once for All. It is great to have you with us today. And uh, if you want to chime in uh, during today's broadcast, you can give us a call, 1-844-51-FAITH, 1-844-51-FAITH, or send us an email, deliveredonceforall at gmail.com. like to get your feedback on today's show because we're continuing our series that we've been doing with Pastor Matt Richard. He's author of the book, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? And continuing in our discussion of that. And Pastor Richard, welcome back to Once for All. Hey, thanks for having me, Evan. It's great to uh, visit about this topic and, uh, yeah, have a good time talking about all the different false Christs that are out there. Well, there is no shortage of those false Christs, and we continue to meet some more of them as we continue to read in your book. And in your book, in your book you introduce us to someone named Ruby, whom you call the moralist. Tell us how you encounter Ruby. Yeah, Ruby is actually fairly complex, and in fact, out of the whole book, all the different false Christs that we meet and all the different characters that we meet, uh, all the way from the first chapter to the very end, uh, Ruby, hands down, is probably by far the most complex person in this book. There's a lot of different dynamics going on with her, but uh, the the reader will meet Ruby um, as I'm encountering Ruby at this retirement home. It was a uh, type of a retirement-assisted living home. Uh, that had a chapel service, and it was more of a uh, interdenominational type chapel service. Uh, and uh, you'd have different residents coming uh, to this chapel service where uh, hymns were sung and a uh, sermon was preached. And Ruby was a, a prominent person in this assisted living uh, complex and also a frequent visitor of the local church uh, that I was at. And uh, typically, Ruby is one of those persons that would come up after the sermon and would kind of poke a little bit at the sermon. She was always pushing back a little bit. And so the reader meets Ruby after a chapel service where she is struggling with the sermon, and uh, she's struggling uh, not hearing what she perceives as not being the full or the real gospel. She wants to hear the full gospel, and what I apparently am giving her in this uh, story is just a part of the gospel. So what did your sermon sound like that she thought was lacking? Well, there's a, there's a couple components. Uh, she struggled with hearing a very stern law, and so uh, the law that when she would hear it, the law was so stern that it left her no wiggle room, and that's the, that's the characteristic of our old Adam, our sinful nature. Our sinful nature doesn't like to be caught, uh, you know, red-handed. We don't like to be caught with our hand in the cookie jar, as they say. And so the law, when it comes really stern in a sermon, and it really condemns us and leaves us no place to wiggle, and when the law comes from the perspective of, of, of like being a hammer, and it hammers us down and grinds us down and it shuts our mouth, then we're left no excuses. And then when you hear a gospel, the gospel message, when you hear it very unconditionally, when it's all about Jesus, uh, then it doesn't allow the sinful nature to participate with salvation. And so Ruby was very, very much used to hearing a law that wasn't so stern and a conditional gospel. So she would hear the law is basically kind of nudging her along, showing her bad things that she was doing. And, you know, the law was kind of spoken in a way to get her to do good things. And then the gospel was an invitation for her to participate with Jesus to help fix and remedy these problems. Uh, But the law that she was hearing from me was one that condemned, and the gospel that she was hearing was one that was all about Jesus. And it didn't allow her a place at the table. She didn't have a place to, to get involved in that narrative and that message. And it left her basically faced with the real Jesus who did it all for her, and she really didn't like that Jesus. She wanted uh, the moral example, a a false Christ that she could be involved with in her own spirituality. What's the danger of the false Christ you call the moral example? 
Yeah, very good question. Well, with with the moral example, what we have to consider is that, in in a way, you know, we look at Jesus, and he's indeed an example. You know, when we talk about Scripture, we know love by looking at Christ, and that love of Christ is shown to us on the cross. So, in, in a sense, we look at Jesus, and we see what true love is. We we see him as the example of dying for us, and believing, and dying, and coming for us, and all of his works to us as poor, miserable sinners. Uh, But the problem is, is when we make Jesus an example um, as one that we are set out to try to emulate, um, the problem is we can't be Jesus. We just can't do what Jesus did. And the reason being is we're just way too sinful. And that is really the problem at the heart with Ruby here, is, is that Ruby sees herself not so much as a sinner. She sees herself as a sinner in the past, but in the present tense, she sees herself as morally elevated. Um, she almost sees herself at a, at, a, at a higher position, a little bit less sinful. She was sinful in the past, but right now she's not nearly as sinful. In other words, she hasn't uh, seen the ongoing effects of what we call original sin in her life. And so because she doesn't see herself truly as a sinner right here in the right now, then she wants a false Christ as an example that she can then pull herself up by her own bootstraps and then work by her own strength and might to perfect herself in mimicking and following uh, the moral example of false Christ. Where do we come and see the false Christ of the moral example oftentimes uh, prevalent or, or, or preached today? Uh, where do we see it? Is that what you asked there? Evan? Yeah. Yeah, the thing is, when we hear, I, I think really when it comes down to it, we, we can hear this false Christ uh, many times uh, if you go into a Christian bookstore or you turn on the TV uh, to some of the different religious channels um, that you can find late at night. And what you want to listen for is basically the marching orders from the pastor. And so, in other words, um, the law, the pastor will speak of the law that will be spoken in these books, these Christian living books, is a law that doesn't necessarily um, condemn you underneath your sin. It just kind of points out your bad problems and so uh, your, your struggles. And so it kind of hints at the bad struggles. And then the gospel comes along, and the gospel isn't all about Jesus, but it's about what you're going to do with Jesus uh, to somehow remedy these these issues and to, to usually typically take these marching orders to enact in your life, morally speaking, and then by morally doing these things, then you somehow elevate yourself up above these problems of sin and so forth. And what it does, ultimately, what it does is it puts Jesus in the passenger seat and puts you in the driver's seat. And really, I mean, another way of looking at it, it also puts Jesus, if you're riding maybe a two-seated bike, it puts him in the back and you're the one pedaling in the front. And ultimately, uh, when we participate in our salvation and we participate uh, in the sense of us having to do all the primary work, of us having to do all the primary verbs in our spirituality, if it comes down to us doing the majority of that, well, we fail every time. And that's really where Ruby is at. She is actually deceiving herself and thinking that she can pull it off by her own strength. One of the things you mentioned about Ruby is that uh, that the significant matter of salvation was something that happened in the past. And so uh, Ruby might be heard saying things like that I, I was a sinner or that I was saved in the past tense. How should we rightly think about this? Yeah, you know, here's the thing when it comes to Ruby and, you know, individuals like Ruby. And, and I would say that I've held to this ideology of Ruby as well, what she holds to. And it really comes down to fundamentally how do we understand uh, the book of Romans, the, the, the letter of Romans that Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, uh, more specifically the seventh chapter, uh, where Paul says there, it's this great, great uh, section of chapter seven where he says, the very good that I want to do, I don't up doing. In fact, the very evil I despise, that's which I, that is which I, that is what I end up doing myself. And you kind of get this picture where Paul is, 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 is about ready to slam his head against the wall. He's pulling that his hair uh, in frustration, um, saying, what a wretched man that I am, uh, this body of sin and death, uh, you know, the very good things that are out there I want to do, but I don't do. And he, he's at conflict with himself. It's the civil war that Paul has within himself. 
uh, the war with his old sinful old Adam, his sinful nature. And the great thing when it comes down to this is how do we understand Paul's dialogue in Romans 7? Is he talking about himself as a Christian in the here and now, in the present tense? Or was he, is he talking about himself uh, before he was a Christian? Well, for us as Lutherans, and I think biblically speaking, um, I think there's a very, very firm argument uh, in the text as you look at it that Paul is indeed talking about the present life of the Christian, struggling and warring and fighting against this old sinful nature. And so the problem, though, is someone like Ruby she can dismiss that struggle with sin and say, well, that's something that happened before I became a Christian, and that now that I'm a Christian, I don't struggle with that sin as I once did. Um, and that's the deceiving part, where she has deceived herself into thinking that uh, the war with sin is not as great as it once was, but that's really, really at the heart of the deception. The the old Adam, the sinful nature, is with us around our neck until the day we die. And in fact, you know, when it comes to the Lord's Prayer, uh, the Lord's Prayer is a prayer against the devil, it's a prayer against the world, and it's a prayer against ourselves. And so we never, ever escape this war uh, with our sinful nature. And, and unfortunately, Ruby has dismissed that, and uh, she has not really uh, come to terms with the fact that not only was she a sinner, but she currently is, which means that she needs Jesus just as much now as when she was first converted. What's the best way to uh, respond to Ruby and some of uh, the misunderstandings that you've described? Yeah, I think really it comes back to Romans 7. I mean, and that, that is really where it's at, you know. And, and, and I've had conversations with Christians very much like Ruby before, and it really comes back to Romans 7. And it even comes back to this as well. Um, I have found situations where people are talking about how um, they are now living their best life now and that they have somehow elevated and pulled themselves out of the muck of sin and they're living a very morally pure life. And I just simply have joy of just simply beating my breast and saying I'm a poor, miserable sinner and that every day that I grow older, um, what I end up seeing is not how great Matt Richard is. I just end up seeing... Just just how much I need Jesus and how much of a sinner that I am. And that's really the Lord, the Lord God working through his word, uh, the word of law, that the law of God comes to me. And as I contemplate the Ten Commandments, the more that I contemplate the Ten Commandments, the more I realize just man, what a sinner that I am in thought, word, and deed. And so to confess that, um, and that's not... That's not celebrating sin, but it's confessing sin. And when we confess sin, we confess our need for Jesus, and we confess our need for the Holy Spirit to be at work in us, to create in us a new heart. And so I'd say twofold. One, it's, it's coming back to Romans 7, and then also for people like Ruby to even go to almost a, boy, almost like a personal testimony, a, a confession of our own sin and the confession of, of the forgiveness of sins given to us in Christ to help them see uh, what that actually looks like, living in the present grace of the Lord Jesus Christ continually for our sin and thought, word, and deed every single day. You're a pastor. I'm sure that you uh, meet people like Ruby and see uh, uh, maybe a process that um, such people go through from uh, understanding uh, Christian life about uh, constantly I don't know, living up to these certain demands, to the freedom of the gospel of living in a present grace reality that you described. Uh, pastorally speaking, what's the difference between uh, the, those two people? One who sees the Christian life about um, you know getting morally better, following following the Jesus, the moral example, versus the person who sees Jesus as the atonement for sins that's uh, been delivered as a present reality. Right, right. Very good question. You know, um, I address this a little bit in the book, but I think a person who addresses it much, much better is is a uh, professor named John Kleinig, and, and he talks about, I just love how he says this, he talks about a reverse progress, um, that the older that we get, the more we understand the cobwebs of our sin in our heart. The older we get, we understand the frailty of our body, that we are on our way to death, and that life is a progress, uh, a progression of us understanding just how much we need Jesus. And I think 
um, that is drastically different than someone like Ruby who thinks that she's getting better uh, with time. Uh, and so, so uh, we want to make sure that we, we don't say that there's not progress, but it's not progress in the way that Ruby sees progress. Ruby sees progress as, as she is getting more independent, more mature in, in what she's able to do in handling the problems of life, where I think that uh, Kleinig is right, and I, and I hit on this idea in the book as well, that as we continue in life, that the progress is us understanding just how desperately we need Christ and his forgiveness and how much we need the work of the Lord on us and how um, we go from the place of uh, independence to dependence. I mean, typically when we're younger, we think we can conquer the world, and the older we get, the more we realize um, just how frail we are as uh, human beings and, again, uh, how much we need Christ. And so uh, there's a shift in the way that we understand the role of Jesus um, the older we get, uh, clinging to him evermore, uh, uh, asking him to strengthen our faith as we get older, uh, because we just understand how desperately, desperately we need him as we journey in this life. We're talking with Pastor Matt Richard. He's author of the book, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? We're going to continue the conversation with him right after this break. When we get back, we'll be talking about Jesus, the new Moses. That after this, you're listening to Once for All. Don't go away. Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. The Alabama Health Department wrote a 17-page health violation report on Planned Parenthood in Birmingham. Staff wasn't screened for tuberculosis and hepatitis B. They weren't even washing their hands. The report instructed Planned Parenthood, quote, when hands are visibly soiled with blood, wash hands with soap and water. Can you imagine? The same abortion mill was shut down a few years ago because employees were illegally selling drugs from the parking lot. Shortly before that, they were caught doing two abortions within four months on a 13-year-old and failing to report she was being abused. This is Planned Parenthood, and they're fighting to keep your tax dollars flowing into their pockets to operate like a back-alley abortion mill. Contact your elected officials and ask them to stop funding Planned Parenthood. Follow us on Twitter at Life Issues USA and stay informed, more informed than you've ever been. In his foreword to Lucas Woodford's book, Great Commission, Great Confusion, or Great Confession, Dr. Harold Sinkbile cautions us against the desperate efforts of market-style evangelism and reminds us what the church really ought to be about. He writes, Desperation breeds innovation. When it dawns on churches that they are losing headway in terms of numerical growth, panic ensues. We've got to do something, they cry. Here's something, let's do it. In the name of contextualizing the gospel, it would appear almost anything goes. Methods from the entertainment and sales industries have been widely adapted, adopted, and imported, but to little or no avail. Statistically, the church, especially in North America, seems to be in decline. The key to the church's vitality for the looming post-Christian era is the same as it was in the pre-Christian era. Doctrinal clarity coupled with corresponding faithful practice. That was Harold Sinkbile for today's Takedown Minute. Welcome back to Once for All. Great to have you with us. We're on the line with Pastor Matthew Richard. He's author of the book, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? Analyzing uh, False Christ. And, uh, and and Pastor Richard, you talk in your book about someone named uh, Walter. And uh, Walter had a grave concern about a member of the congregation, I guess, suppose, I guess when he looked over the, the fence. What did he see? Yeah, Walter is on his way to the uh, church picnic, and it's a yearly church picnic where everyone gets together. And uh, he was heading over a little bit early; he had a little extra time. And as he was going by the um, one of the elders, one of the leaders of the church, he noticed the leader uh, had been mowing his lawn, and he, he kind of peeked over the fence. And uh, lo and behold, he sees that the leader of the church is actually drinking down a cold one, uh, a beer. And so he comes to the church picnic, and he is, oh, he is so incredibly distraught, uh, so completely 
worried and actually uh, borderline worried on the one hand, uh, concerned on the other hand, and yet uh, at the same time he's, he's angry and frustrated that, that one of the leaders of the church could sink so low to actually uh, drink a cold one. Uh, you know, whether it was a Miller Lite or, or a Bud Light, we, we don't know, but it was definitely a beer, and that was just way too much for Walter. Would you say um, that the distinction between what you're describing now, the uh, Jesus, the new Moses versus Jesus, the moral example, is that in this one, Jesus is bringing laws that are not actually in the Bible versus the moral example. Jesus is all about law, but it's the, you know, the laws of morality of getting better through the law. Yeah, yeah, they're they're very very closely related, and that's the reason why I put them close in the book. Actually, back to back chapters, they kind of they kind of spin off of each other. Exactly, the moral example. He's about giving a watered down law. So it is definitely a law of the Bible, but it's definitely watered down, um, and it's not in its full sternness. And so they're they're kind of a uh, the 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 moral example is more so giving mere guidelines, you know, <laughs> whereas. The, the new Moses um, Christ here, this false Christ, is giving now, giving laws that are not in the Bible. And we should just actually pause here for a moment and say that, that it is clear from the Bible that drunkenness is a sin. And so the Bible speaks very, very clearly about drunkenness. And so uh, that was one of the main concerns when Walter uh, comes to me in the book and he asks this question, you know, or, or states that, man, this leader is drinking a beer. Immediately uh, um, in the book, you know, I'm concerned, is, is our leader drunk? Because if he's drunk, then that's definitely a violation of, of God's word, and it's showing that he's lacking self-control and so forth, and that should definitely be addressed, um, you know, especially the leader uh, being drunk where other people are seeing them. That, that is unbecoming of a leader. Um, but what we see here is that, you know, the leader was not drunk. Uh, he was just having a cold one. And what ends up happening here is that Walter is creating this as a law, but unfortunately for Walter, there's nowhere in the Bible that this is actually found as a law, um, you know, explicitly written. So Walter has built a, a, a plethora, an abundance of different laws that uphold a social context, a, a way, a culture, and the way that he believes a Christian should be. And these are laws not printed in the Bible, but they are laws that he enforces through this new Moses false Christ. And these new laws are imposed to legislate and to kind of curb people into a cultural um, a cultural way of being so that they fit a mold that he has perceived of what it looks like to be a Christian. You connect this in the scriptures to Mark chapter 7, where the Jesus encounters some of the, the Pharisees who describe the, um, the, the traditions of the elders. Uh, talk about how this is essentially the same thing of what uh, Walter was doing. Well, yeah, and here's the thing. You know, when we talk about the law, you know, we, we want to understand when we talk about the law of God, what we mean by that is the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments, the things that are, are, are outright stated for sure. But, but the problem is, and when we look back at Mark 7, and we also look at Walter, is that he is creating laws of mankind. You know, these are not laws coming from God. These are laws that are coming from the traditions of men. And, and here's, the, here's the fundamental problem with the Pharisees and, Wal and Walter in our, in our chapter here, is that when you, when you point towards a law that is not of the Bible, then you have a difficult time pointing out sin. So in other words, uh, if we look at the Ten Commandments, they are there uh, to, to protect us. These, these Ten Commandments are gifts meant to protect us, uh, protect God's good gifts for us. And through these Ten Commandments, they reveal and show to us ways in which we have sinned. Now, Walter uh, has these commandments that he has created, these new Moses commandments that are not in the Bible, but what he's unwilling to do is he's unwilling to commit to calling these things outright sin. So here, here's, the, here's, here's the whole crux of this. If we're not able to call something sin, then we're not able to repent of it. And if we're not able to repent of it, we're not able to be uh, receive forgiveness. And so what Walter is actually doing is he is actually putting uh, a spiritual oppression upon these people. He is, he is binding their conscience with a law that doesn't exist in the Bible and a law that doesn't point out sin. And he gives these people uh, no ways of 
you know, uh, recompensing this, no way of getting out of it. So he binds them in his own condemnation until they switch and appease his desire. And once they do that, then they can be free and hopefully be in the good graces of Walter again. Um, but this is, this is nowhere near um, how Christianity works, which is basically repentance and confession of sin and absolution in Christ. And so Walter has become the lawgiver through his false Christ, and he's also become the one who absolves once a person meets up to his own standards of the laws that he's created. In regards to what you just said, you say in your book, what has just been described in Walter's actions and words is uh, is what is commonly called legalism. Both legalism and lawlessness are like ditches people can easily fall into. What do you mean by that? Yeah, they, they, they are both, um, man, they're both ditches, absolutely. You know, what happens is this, is we can go two different ways. Um, we can go the way of looking at the law, the law actually shows us our sins. So when it comes to sin, we, we really have two, actually three ways of dealing with sin. Uh, on the one hand, with sin, we can celebrate it. So we take sin and we celebrate it, and we, we basically kick the law out. You know, we, we throw the law out the door and we say there's no such thing as sin. This is something to be celebrated and normalized. That is the way of what we would say is licentiousness or antinomianism. On the other side of the coin, we take sin and we conceal it. We bury it. We hide it underneath uh, layers upon layers of of good things that we've done. And so both of them, legalism and lawlessness, or legalism and antinomianism, are both the same, uh, they're the two sides of the same coin. They both do not want to confess sin. And so for somebody in, uh, you know, lawlessness, which is also antinomianism, they will not confess their sinners because they're so busy celebrating their sin that they want to be whole and just by celebrating it. On the other hand, uh, the legalist on the other side is so busy concealing their sin that they refuse to confess it as well. But those that are in Christ will confess their sin, they'll beat their breast, and they will say, I, a poor, miserable sinner, have sinned in thought, word, and deed, and I therefore need the Lord Jesus. I flee to his refuge and his mercy and his grace, and I need to hear the forgiveness of sins. And so those that conceal and those that celebrate um, are essentially denying their need for the gospel. They're denying their need uh, for forgiveness. But those who confess are rightly reflecting the law, saying the law has condemned me, that I am wrong, that I am indeed a sinner, and that I do need forgiveness. So thus they confess and then hear the forgiveness of Jesus. What's the best way to approach Walter? Yeah, with, with Walter. Now, here, here's the thing. If, if Walter would come to us, and let's just say Walter is a recovering alcoholic, and he comes to us and his faith is really grieved by this and that he's really, really struggling, um, then I think technically with Walt, Walter, uh, Walter, excuse me, with Walter, if he was coming to us as a young Christian and he was grieved and struggling with this, then we would want to be very, very gracious. We'd want to be compassionate. We'd want to be gentle with him. We'd want to um, maybe talk to the, the person that was drinking the beer and, and try to ask them, you know, let's try to be sensitive with Walter because he's a new Christian. He's struggling. His faith is weak in this area. So we want to be very careful to protect him and be there to love and take care of him. But this is not how Walter is in this chapter. Walter has actually gone the other way. He's very, very antagonistic. Um, he, he actually uh, is, is very, very hard-headed on this. He, he's actually holding to a false theology here. And so when it comes to uh, somebody who isn't weak in the faith, but someone who is legalistic in the faith like Walter, then we, we are not compassionate, but we show our compassion in a way that's kind of unique. And that is this, is that we would actually um, balk against and we would push back against Walter's ideology. So I told people that, that if somebody is grieving and struggling as a, as a Christian with, with you know, something such as a, a beer, um, and I'm not even and myself, I'm not even a big beer liker myself, but uh, you would not drink a beer in front of them. You would want to love and serve them. But
But with someone like Walter, who there, who has no faith and that he is so tied up in this legalism, then we ought to actually crack open up that beer in front of him and, and try to intentionally offend him, because it's not him that needs to be offended, but it is his, his really poor theology that needs to be shaken to the core for him to understand that he is actually following, following a false Christ. Can you uh, point to a scriptural reference that would demonstrate that distinction? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when we think about this, uh, there's a couple of situations. The Apostle Paul, um, when he's working with Timothy and Titus, um, for, for instance here, um, the Apostle Paul, he had Timothy circumcised, uh, I believe it's in Acts chapter 16. And But yet at the same time, when he has uh, Titus, he refuses to have Titus circumcised in the book of uh, Galatians. And what's going on here is this is that uh, Paul is going with Timothy to minister to these Jewish people, and out of the sake of loving them and being there for him, he has Timothy circumcised in order not to, um, to wound their faith and to, to have a big roadblock in ministry to them. But on the other hand, uh, Paul is with Titus and the Judaizers. These are the legalizers in Galatians, and they are insisting on this law, and they're holding to it, uh, you know, just with absolute vengeance. And so in order to uh, show them that they are following a false gospel, which is really no gospel at all, he tells Titus, no, we're not going to have you circumcised. We're not going to give in to their theology as to validate their theology. And that is actually the loving thing to do. So in that case in point, he uh, does not have Titus circumcised, but yet in Acts 16, he does have Timothy circumcised uh, in order to serve. So one is going by the way of serving those who might be weak in the faith, and the other is serving those who are legalistic, and that is by confronting their false theology. And how does someone who, who like Walter, uh, holds to a uh, Jesus, the, the new Moses, um, how does this prevent them from seeing the true Jesus? Well, here's the thing. You know, when we create false laws, usually the false laws that we create that are not in the Bible, they are typically laws that we are able to fulfill ourselves. And so we all do this. I mean, I do this myself, where we have expectations that we place on other people. And typically those expectations are things that we are able to do ourselves. We, we typically don't um, hold expectations upon other people that we can't fulfill because that makes us uncomfortable. So uh, someone like Walter uh, creates a bunch of false laws based upon a pretend false Jesus, which is the new Moses false Christ, and then he sets out to accomplish those in his own might, which they're typically easy for him to do because uh, he's imposed on them himself, and then he condemns everyone else around him for not fulfilling his laws. And so what he's essentially doing is he... Boy, how do I say this nicely? He's becoming, he's becoming a self-righteous jerk, and that is our temptation of all of us. And it's easy to do that when we uh, you know, jump into that uh, way of thinking. And so by imposing our own man-made laws, our own rules, and that rules that we can fulfill, then we are essentially saying, I don't need Jesus, I'm doing fine on my own, fulfilling laws that I've created in my own mind. And then I condemn everyone else around me. And then I say, look how good that I'm doing. I'm doing so much better than them versus beating our chest and saying, man, God have mercy on me, a sinner who has not held to the Ten Commandments. And, oh, do I need Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And I need his Holy Spirit to create in me a new heart, a clean heart each and every day to follow in those Ten Commandments uh, and loving God and serving my neighbor. Now, before we take a break and move on to the next chapter in your book, I want to ask a bit of a sidebar question because you brought up from Mark chapter 7, the traditions of men, and many would maybe go to a church like yours or mine and, and, and look at the traditions, maybe you know, lighting candles, standing up, sitting down, uh, wearing robes in church. Um, are these examples of traditions of men? Well, you know, one thing we want to understand is that tradition is not always bad, you know, and so we got to make sure that we understand that. Uh, traditions that serve the gospel are actually good. Um, you know, so when we talk about the traditions in our churches, we have 
all sorts of traditions here at Zion Lutheran Church. There are traditions in our church that probably are not at your church. And we keep the traditions in the church insofar as that they are helpful tools to serve the flock and to serve people. I mean, uh, every place that you go has traditions. Um, I'm reminded of going to NDSU football games. And, uh, you know, I take my son there with the uh, bison. And we come into the, the, the Fargo Dome, and, and everyone's wearing the same clothes, and we stand up and we cheer the same times, we say the same chants, we get up and we get the same hot dogs. There are traditions that are embedded in that uh, Fargo Dome for the NDSU bison. These are traditions that we hold as valuable and wonderful and great because they help with the crowd to cheer on the bison football team. And so we extol those as great traditions that we pass down to our younger Bison fans in order to have that spirit of football and to be good Bison fans. It's the same thing with the church. Uh, We have traditions in the church that are good for serving the church and serving the gospel and and communicating who we are and what we're about and the good good gifts that God gives us. So tradition is only dangerous when it stands in the way of the gospel and traditions they become bad when they usurp the gospel and that is the case of of history we've seen that where traditions are warped to the point where we end up um, serving the tradition rather than Jesus serving us Uh, but in the case of Walter here these are completely man-made traditions and man-made laws to the point that they disconnect us and distance us from the Lord Jesus Christ and his word and sacraments we're talking with Pastor Matthew Richard. He's author of the book, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? And we're going to be continuing our conversation with him right after this break. When we get back from this break, we'll be talking about Jesus, the mystical friend. That's on Once for All. Don't go away. It's time for Table Talk Extras with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. You're the man. I've heard people say that when someone does something well, makes some amazing play on the basketball court or something like that. Now, no one's ever said it to me, of course, but I've seen it there. You're the man. It's, it means you've done well. You've done right. But in the Bible, it means the exact opposite. Remember the story of David and Bathsheba. How David, instead of fighting, is home and he sees Bathsheba bathing on her roof. He calls her to himself and breaks the sixth commandment, commits adultery with her, and she turns up pregnant. Then David plots to cover up the sixth commandment by having Uriah come home, but in his faithfulness to the king, he doesn't. So David sends Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, back to the war with his own death sentence in his hand. And as often happens in this world, the breaking of the fifth commandment follows the breaking of the sixth commandment. But the Lord doesn't want David to remain in his sin, so he sends to him Nathan the prophet. And Nathan tells him this story. There's a certain rich man who had everything he wanted, all sorts of flocks and sheep and everything like this. And when a man comes to visit him, instead of killing one of his own flock, he goes to his neighbor who has one sheep that he loves uh, like a pet. And he takes that little lamb and he slaughters that for his friend. And David is outraged. Who is this man that I might put him to death? And Nathan says to David, You are the man. You're the man that's done this. You're the man that sinned against your neighbor and against God. And David, crushed by the law, repents and hears, and this is always the surprise, the absolution of his sins in the words of the prophet Nathan. The Lord also has put away your sin. We rejoice that we are these men who have our sins put away by our Lord Jesus Christ. This has been a production of Table Talk Radio. For more information, visit tabletalkradio.org. This is Sacred Meditations. O Lord, mercifully receive the prayers of your people who call upon you and grant that they may know and understand what things they ought to do and also may have grace and power faithfully to accomplish them. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Learning to pray by actually praying, this is sacredmeditations.org. Thank you for making Sacred Meditations part of your day.
back. You are listening to Once for All, and we are talking about the book, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? 12 False Christ by Dr. Matthew Richard. He's our guest for the hour. And Pastor Richard, you say in your book that you meet Zach, Minnie, and Stephanie when they invite you and your wife over to a small group Bible study over at their house. And uh, what was the first red flag that something wasn't quite right with the Jesus they present? Yeah, yeah. Invited over to their house for a uh, small group Bible study, and uh, um, the question was posed. There was a passage in the book of James, and the question was posed, you know, what does this verse mean to you? And maybe we've heard that. I mean, I know people have heard that many, many times over the years in being in Bible study and, uh, you know, contemplating God's Word. And it's very, very subtle, but when we say, what does this, Bi- what does this Bible verse mean to you, uh, that is a fundamental problem, and here's the reason why. When we say, what does this mean to me, then what we do, without even knowing it oftentimes, is we take that verse, we, we rip it out of the context, and we place it in our own mind, and we mull it over, and then we give a subjective uh, perspective of what well, this verse means to me individually. But, but now here's the problem. Here's a better way of asking that question. What does that verse say to you? In other words, or what is this verse saying to us? What is this verse saying within the context of the passage that it is in? So one way takes the verse and it rips it out, places it in our mind, and we mull it over in the context of our own being and our circumstances. The other one leaves the verse in the Bible and it forces us to see and say, what is this verse saying in this context of this Bible? And so what ends up happening is the Bible either is taken into our inner self and we end up looking inwardly, contemplating on it, or we have the verses of the Bible coming out from the Bible, and then they interrogate us and they shape and form us. Uh, hopefully that makes sense. Fundamentally, two different ways of us contemplating and, and reading the Bible, really. So in other words, if, if the question is asked, what is this verse or verses, what, what do they mean to you, that suggests that the meaning of the verse is not stand in the explanation of the apostle or you know God who inspired the writing, but it really rests and depends upon me, and uh, I can have my meaning interpretation, or not even interpretation, I can have my meaning of this verse, and someone else could have a completely different meaning of the verse, and no one's right or wrong. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Yep. yep. That's a good way of putting it. And I've been in Bible studies, you know, this is before being a pastor, where you're reading a passage in the scriptures, and you come across a verse, and it's like, what does this mean to you? And then you kind of pause, and then all of a sudden you have seven different people give seven different answers, and then my question is, okay, well, does that verse actually say those seven different things? <laughs> now, sometimes, you know, a verse can actually uh, be spoken in a different context, but the reality is, in many times in, in, in Bible study, you say, what does this verse mean to you? And then someone says, well, I think it means, you know, X. And somebody else says, well, I think it means Y. And somebody means, well, it means Z. Well, are all three right? Um, and oftentimes you compare them like, man, they can't all be right because that verse only says one thing. And that one thing that it says is actually contained in the pages of the Bible itself. So, yeah, it's a very individualistic way of reading the Bible. Uh, and it takes in our focus and makes it go inward to ourselves. Well, that would be red flag enough, but you say in your book that Mindy leaned forward during this time and said, I once had a direct encounter with the Lord that sort of awakened me to the inner freedom to let go of some of the ways that the church had limited Jesus. I came to know Jesus dwelling behind all the rituals and doctrines, and I came to know him through that still small voice within. I saw him through the eyes of my heart. What is behind Mindy's statement there? Yeah, what Mindy is actually doing is she's actually separating the Lord's Word, His His voice, His Word to us. She's separating it from His actual Bible, and she's taking it, and she's locating the message of God somewhere deep in the caverns of her heart. And so really, for Mindy, you, you could challenge Mindy and say, well, Mindy, how do you know what God says about a certain situation. 
Well, you know, Mindy would be not one who would say, well, let's see what God says in his word. She would say, well, let me contemplate and see how the Lord reveals that answer within the caverns of my heart, how he might give me eyes of faith to see within my heart what he has to say for uh, me in this situation. And so, uh, you know, really when it comes down to it, you know, Mindy has gone the way of what we would call mysticism or uh, the word would be enthusiast. Uh, this is an old word that's used from the 1500s. Uh, basically, de- detaching God's voice and His message and His word from His actual Bible, from His proclaimed word in the Scriptures, and she's locating His authoritative voice in the caverns of her heart, oftentimes detached from the uh, official word of God. You say that uh, Zach and Mindy have the tendency to look inward. Um, for the things of faith, what what does that mean to look inward, and, and what is the result? Well, you know, typically when we look inward, um, and this is a this is a huge fundamental shift for people. I know for myself, this is one of the things that I struggle with many times. That you know, when we look inward, um, we typically when we look inward, we, we think to ourselves in our society that we look inward for our hope and solution. Um, however. We would say, scripturally speaking, uh, when we look inward to our heart, what we find is not the answer. We find sin, layers of sin with our despicable heart. Um, the, Bible, the Bible clearly tells us that, that the uh, heart cannot be trusted, that it has layers upon layers of sin, that it's deceived. And so our answer is not looking inward to our heart. Our answer is looking outward to God and His Word. But typically what happens is this, is we, we typically think as human beings, naturally, that all the problems in life are all out there. They're with everybody else, you know, the devil out there or another person that has done it to me. Everyone else is out there that is a problem. The solution is deep within myself. And so if I just, uh, you know, you could take any sports model that you can think of that where we have to pull ourselves up and, and dig deep within and to, uh, to access uh, and to grab a hold of the potential that lies within us. So we look inward for hope and we fight the external problems that are out there. But fundamentally, the problem, the number one problem in this world is Matt Richard. Uh, You know, the number one problem is all of our hearts. And the solution is not buried deep within me. The solution is in Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ who comes to me in his word and sacrament. And so I'm always clinging outside of me to Jesus who comes to me. And uh, as uh, the popular radio program, uh, Issues Etc. always says, it's not about the Christian. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ who is for the Christian. And so we're always holding upon uh, Christ Jesus who comes to us from the outside in. Additionally, you talk about how uh, Zach and Mindy and, and all the people whom um, maybe uh, they represent, uh, those who see um, the, the Spirit working apart from the external Word of God, um, also tend to see something a bit more uh, holy, a bit more uh, spiritual of the immaterial than the external material and um, is this uh, kind of a, a, a return to that ancient heresy called Gnosticism yeah absolutely um, what happens is this is that uh, Zach and Mindy in this chapter they definitely most definitely they they, they struggle with uh, concrete things you know because they're so uh, you know they're so in how do I say this? they're so uh, they have such a desire to look within, and so anything external they see as second class. So things such as you know, um, you know, reading the Bible or or, or uh, the sacrament of baptism, which is water, or the the bread and the wine of communion. These things are just material things, but the real, real supernatural. Uh, wonderful, great Christian life is all within these uh, mystical, spiritualized things uh, that are not tangible. And so uh, a classic example of this is, you know, um, oftentimes people are wanting to get to a new spiritual level, and they want to do something for the Lord, so they are looking within to some spiritual experience. But we would say that really 
um, one of the greatest things that we can do is simply serving our neighbor, um, which is really what we see in the Ten Commandments, loving God and loving our neighbor. And so it is completely and wonderful and good and true to simply serving our neighbor in tangible ways. Um, but for them, that would be, you know, something that maybe a normal Christian would do. But for them, they want to do something supernatural and special. They're going to be looking within, uh, you know, to their hearts and to mystical things um, that can give them, I hate to say it this way, almost like a euphoric mystical high. Again, what would someone who looks to the mystical friend Jesus be missing out on uh, because they don't have the real Jesus? Yeah, you know, what happens is this, is, you know, because they're looking inward, um, what they do is they forget the reality that the uh, real Jesus Christ has ascended. You know, we confess this in the book of Acts. We confess this in the creeds each and every Sunday, that the Lord Jesus Christ has bodily, you know, not just not just uh, some spiritized Jesus, but he has bodily resurrected and is at the right hand of the Father, that Jesus is now uh, completely risen right now, not just in a spiritized being, but he is risen bodily speaking. And he comes to us in his word. He comes to us in the sacrament. And so we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is with us, not only by having the Holy Spirit, but we know Jesus is with us when we eat his body and drink his blood in the Lord's Supper, so we can have that great comfort. But for Zach and Mindy, what they do is they, 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 they take Jesus, and they, they want to locate him deep down in the caverns of their heart, and so they strip him of his humanity, and so they strip him of his humanity, they strip him away from the Word and the sacraments, and they create this uh, ethereal, spiritized being, almost a floaty, ghost-like Jesus, and then they take him and they stuff him deep down in, his, in their hearts. And so Jesus now functions uh, from within the caverns of their heart. He doesn't function to them by the Word and sacraments. Uh, he functions with them apart from the Word and sacraments and apart from having a body, but only as a spiritized being uh, that they have basically, uh, you know, A, created, and then B, um, you know, held hostage within their own being. What's the best way to respond to Zach, Mindy, and Stephanie in a way that would help them see the real Jesus apart from the mystical friend Jesus. Yeah, I think I think uh, we you know just talked about just before here, and that the uh, most important thing would be is to help them understand uh, that Jesus has been risen bodily, and then the second thing is is understanding that uh, really how do they discern between the uh, the still small voice in their hearts, and how how do they discern that from their own sinful nature? Um, in other words, how do how do they discern whether it's actually Jesus speaking to them, quote unquote, from their heart, or actually their sinful nature, or the devil for that matter? You know, whispering lies into our ears, and the only way that we know that is going to be to, to discern that from the Word, that that the Lord Jesus Christ has clearly spoken to us in His Word, and so where do we find Christ? We find Him present where He is promised to be, which is in his word and sacraments for us. And there we don't have to play guessing games. There we don't have to question what God's will is. There in his word we know what his will is in the Ten Commandments. We know what he has done for us in the gospel and that we can receive him personally, each and every one of us, uh, in our baptisms and in also in the Lord's Supper of his body and blood uh, given and shed for us. So it is basically an assurance thing coming back to knowing where we can find Christ and how he delivers himself to us. We've been talking with Pastor Matthew Richard. He's author of the book, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? Twelve False Christs. If you want to check out more about this book, visit our visit the website for the book, cph.org slash realjesus. Uh, Dr. Richard, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the air with us today. Yeah, thanks, Evan. It was great. If you missed any part of today's broadcast, just head over to our website, onceforallradio.com. You can listen to the rest of this episode or any other episode by downloading it at your leisure. If you have a comment or question about anything that you heard during today's broadcast, send me an email, delivered once for all at gmail.com. And you can also leave a voicemail at that phone number, one eight four four five one 51 faith We would love to hear from you and uh, talk to 
talked with you about uh, the, the, the false Christ that have been presented on this program. Next time we talk with Pastor Richard, we'll be talking about the feminized Jesus and the teddy bear Jesus. What happens when we remove masculinity from the equation of the real Jesus? Or what happens when we remove suffering from the real Jesus? That next time when we talk with Pastor Richard on Once for All. Thanks for listening to this edition, and we'll talk to you again next time. This has been Once For All. You can contact the show by sending an email, delivered once for all at gmail.com. You can listen again to this show or any other episodes by visiting onceforallradio.com. Until next time, stand firm in the faith, once delivered to the saints.